think this what I call being product oriented. I think this really helps to get into this lead data scientist position to understand all the whys behind we are building certain things, like what kind of problems we are solving, and then making friends with product managers, trying to understand how users will benefit and trying to put myself in their shoes. I think that helped a lot. And in general, just helping people, I think that was quite a useful thing to do because oftentimes people would reach out to me asking for help. And eventually uh, now as a lead data scientist, it is my job to help people helping people being product-oriented and not being afraid of infrastructure and moving fast. I think this, in summary, would help me. I wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading data specialist recruitment business. They are experts in recruitment strategy and delivery for analytics and data teams. They are the go-to recruitment business for all your data roles in Australia, and they can help both with permanent hires and short-term project-focused data resources. I've used Talent Insights in the past, and I've always found them fantastic to work with. Visit them at talentinsights.com.au. Introducing an exclusive new webinar series on advancing AI. It's available only online, it won't be released to the podcast, but you can join live to these webinars. So join us over breakfast from February to April by signing up in the link in the show notes. We will be interviewing leaders in the data and AI space. They will guide you through the hype and maze of technology to achieve the business transformation we all want from AI. Whether you're looking to leverage AI to optimize the customer experience or to improve your business operations, this series underpins the core elements crucial to your company's AI strategy. Featuring guests from around the globe, including people from companies like NAB, Finair, Woodside, etc. Check out the schedule, sign up through the link in the show notes, or visit datafuturology.com for more information. I'm super excited to bring you this new series. Hope to see you there. Hello, everyone. This is Felipe Flores with uh, another episode of Data Futurology. Thank you so much for coming back. Today, we're speaking with Alexei Grigorev. He is the lead data scientist at OLX Group, which is a, a massive uh, training group. Alexei, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hi. Oh, man. I'm very excited to, to speak with you, talk through your, um, your experience and your career, and also um, the books. I want to ask you about the books that, that you've written and how you found, you know, working almost 10 or about 10 years in, in software engineering in general, but the last six specializing in machine learning and writing books on, on deep learning, on TensorFlow, um, and now the, the machine learning book camp. Um, very, very excited to, to pick your brain on all that plus more. Um, but I wanted to ask you at the beginning to kick us off with your a bit of an origin story of how was it that you got involved and pulled into the world of data? What was it that sparked your interest and, and kicked off um, this, this great career that you've had so far? Yeah, so for me, mostly it was, uh, uh, maybe it's a boring answer because you probably hear that a lot. It was uh, the course on Coursera by Andrew Eng. So basically when it all started. So I, I really liked doing machine learning at university. It wasn't called really machine learning. It was I was doing um, some stuff with data. So I was doing a bit of cluster analysis. I was doing a bit of data, um, uh, digital signal processing, um, things like that. Um, yeah, it wasn't really called data science back then. So I was doing a bit of research in addition to classes. But when I graduated, uh, there was no 
jobs like that. So I was doing mm -hmm. software engineering. But then in 2012, I saw this course on Coursera and this is when I understood that, okay, I know how this thing is called and I know that this uh, is called data science now. And there are now positions in data science, uh, like the data scientists all of a sudden started to appear, like positions uh, that require the skills. And this is when I understood that I want to do this. Of course, it wasn't easy, like just showing up and saying, hey, um, hire me, I want to do data science stuff. So it wasn't enough. Um, so I needed to do, to get a bit of education, study. Um, I got my master's and then uh, eventually I started working. This is how I ended up in Berlin because I, um, I studied at Technical University of Berlin and after graduating I worked, uh, I stayed in Berlin and uh, I worked as a data scientist still, since then. Nice one. And, and to do that, the transition from software engineer to data scientist, in your case, you did some, some freelancing work, is that, is that mm -hmm. right? How, how was that period and do you recommend it as a, as a good, um, good evolution for people to take? Yeah, I think it was fine um, in a sense that uh, it turned out that getting a freelance job was easier than getting a full-time job as a data scientist because mm. people just trusted me that I can do these things. Um, I could do them indeed, so that uh, that was good, even though I actually I had no clue about some things. Like I just said, yeah, I, I would do this, and I managed to do this. It was fun learning experience. Um, so would I recommend doing this? Probably yes, why not, especially if you're a student. So um, in Germany, where I studied, the programs, they are not super intensive. So I had some free time to actually, in addition to courses. And this is when I, I this is how I spent this time. Um, so not just uh, attend classes and uh, you know do all these exercises, but uh, actually do uh, practical things. And I think in retrospect, it was more useful than the actual um, studies to do these things uh, so probably yeah so it's uh, um, but on the other hand perhaps instead of doing this masters uh, getting a full time job immediately would would have been a better idea but back then it wasn't possible now I think it is because uh, previously there was uh, like the bar was to to have like a PhD like a lot mm -hmm. of years of experience now nobody like it's a plus it's a big plus but not uh not a must not a must yeah so i, I think now like if you can get a, a full-time job and get it if uh, maybe your lifestyle is different and you want to freelance then why not um, i don't think it's a bad thing nice one that's that's um that's good good advice uh from somebody who's done it and so tell us a little bit about the, the last six years of your career. Can you give us an overview and um, how you went from, from data scientist to, to lead data scientist at, at the OLX group? So after graduating, I started like a usual data scientist. Having experience in software engineering helped a lot to me. Uh, I think that was one of the reasons. Uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly. So during the interview, we talked mostly about my thesis, uh, but uh, the, the person who was interviewing me, who was also curious about my background as a Java developer because it turned out that uh, in that company, Java was the main language and my experience turned out to be helpful. Um, so then at that company, it was Search Metrics, I um, started doing Kaggle, so um, uh, taking part in competitions. And I think it really helped me to, um, to, um, um, to advance my skills in uh, like this machine learning skills because all of a sudden I realized that everything I studied at university was 
helpless. Like I was helpless. It wasn't helpful to to do anything on Kaggle. So I really tried my best there. I learned a lot of things, and I think this is what really helped me to, let's say, to do interviews. Because when people ask about different machine learning things uh, after doing Kaggle, it wasn't difficult to answer all these things, and I learned a lot of different tricks. And oftentimes I could. Uh, um, like uh, tell about these tricks and uh, sort of um, you know have a very positive impression. Um, then I joined a small startup uh, after that, and in this startup there was nothing. So basically, uh, um, there was uh, like it was an ad tech startup, and um, when it comes to machine learning, there wasn't much. So it was a fresh product, and we had to build the all data pipeline, all the infrastructure from scratch. So basically, we didn't have anything, and I was taking care of that. So building the the whole thing, and I think it helped a lot because it turned out uh, that um, what I learned to do by building this was very valuable on the market. So companies really needed this kind of skills, like somebody who can not just train a model but also um, build the entire pipeline, like do a lot of data engineering, also do some machine learning engineering at the end. So basically, take the whole the, the whole ownership of the thing. And uh, I learned that at a startup because at startup there are mm -hmm. uh, always more problems than people, right? So like, and uh, you have to be a jack of all trades to to do that. And I learned that in a startup that it's actually possible for a single person to get involved into everything. So you don't have to be perfect in everything. You don't have to be an expert. Just a bit of everything is enough to actually to to deliver and to make value, to to produce value and to make impact. And with this uh, set of skills, I uh, ended up at uh, Olix as a, a data scientist and uh, as a senior data scientist. And I, um, yes, yeah, so it was very helpful, like not being afraid of uh, dealing with infrastructure stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, like deploying models, all that things. Uh, um, for many people, for uh, some of my colleagues, it was quite difficult. And for me, having this background in software engineering, that, that was uh, um, sort of an advantage. That uh, and also having this experience at a startup, mm. um, like not being afraid of breaking things, like just uh, for the sake of learning. I think that was very helpful. Um, and basically, like that, also like trying to understand uh, the business side of things. Also, something I learned at the startup mm -hmm. from my product manager back then to really question like everything, like before doing something, just question like why are we doing this? How is it going to be helpful? Uh, like, is there a simpler way to do this? Because at startup, you don't have a lot of time. You want to solve the problem as fast as possible. And then this skill, I think, was very uh, useful. Uh, at the corporation as well, like uh, Oilix is a um, huge company, like there are more than 5,000 uh, people mm. working there. Um, so compared to startup, it's like a big difference, but still some of the skills uh, surprisingly were transferable from that. And I think this, what I call being product oriented, I think this really helped to get into this lead data scientist position to understand all the whys behind we are building certain things, like what kind of problems we are solving, and then making friends with product managers, trying to understand how users will benefit and trying to put myself in their shoes. I think that helped a lot. And in general, just helping people 
I think that was quite a useful thing to do because oftentimes people would reach out to me asking for help. And eventually uh, now as a lead data scientist, it is my job to help people, helping people being product oriented and not being afraid of infrastructure and moving fast. I think this in summary would help me. That's really great. And isn't it, isn't it ironic that in, uh, in a lot of large companies, they encourage people to specialize and kind of like be in their little box of the production line. Uh, but the, but um, large corporations really value people that can do the end-to-end and that, and that have experience in that end-to-end process. And, and getting that in a, in a startup is, is a really good way to mm-hmm. almost being thrown in the deep end and being forced to be responsible for everything because you have to be delivering value, right? Um, and then that gives you kind of like superpowers in corporate because you're one of the people that have gone through, through everything. Um, how, how do you help people in your team get that visibility across the, the end-to-end value chain and taking, taking things to, to production and being able to deliver value for, for customers? Well, in a couple of ways. First, uh, by mentoring. So having uh, like... Uh, talking to people regularly, finding out what uh, are the problems they're facing and suggesting ways to, uh, to, to solve these problems or give another perspective, um, talk about things they um, maybe haven't considered. Um, often it's by asking questions like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Or what do you think about this uh, particular thing? Like uh, um, that and another thing is uh, we I'm driving one of the initiatives to make um, um, serving models simpler, uh, like streamline the whole thing. So training a model usually, uh, as we found out, is not as difficult, right? Because we have the tools, we can train it on a laptop, we can train it on the cloud, we use AWS, we can train it there. Um, even though it's not entirely standardized, we can find a way to train a model. We can find a way to get uh, the data because with uh, the, when it comes to data engineering, we have a very strong team uh, that makes sure that uh, we collect all the data we need, we uh, put it in a nice form. So training a model is not difficult. But then taking this model and deploying, this is usually where the main bottleneck is. And um, now I'm working on making this simpler, this step, uh, like having a special platform um, like a place where data scientists can easily publish their models without worrying about infrastructure stuff. Because um, let's say half a year ago, like even three months ago, um, a data scientist would need to set up Terraform on their computer, Kubernetes, uh, like to connect to Kubernetes cluster, uh, do all that. And that is intimidating for many people. And then, uh, yeah, and uh, what I'm trying to do is help them and not, well, so they don't have to do this, like have a special place where they can just, okay, this is my model, this is, our, this is the specification, just do this. And we have um, a lot of help for our, from our data engineers who are taking care of uh, this data engineering. So some things they are also building tools to help us. And then um, I'm trying to coordinate like how these tools are, um, like what we should build on top of these tools to actually cater for data scientists, not just for, for everyone. Um, yeah, so basically that's helping and then providing tools. Man, that's, that's fantastic. And so um, to, tell me a little bit more about what that's going to look like. Um, obviously, whatever, whatever you can share, um, but mm-hmm. would, would a data scientist be 
be able to, or would they be productionizing their their notebooks, uh, or would they have to create something something separate, like a like a Python script that's more kind of like production ready? Um, and would they be dropping that somewhere? What what would what would the the experience look like for the, the mm -hmm. data scientists looking to productionize models in that case? Yeah, so of course not a notebook. So that's yeah. uh, <laughs> I know some companies do that, but I really hard like I have to use all my imagination to uh, to think how it's even possible, and then I cannot. So I don't know. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what we have usually... we have exploration and building, <laughs> and then yes. we have deployment and production yes. grade. Um, so, so yeah, interesting how you guys separate the two and what it would yeah. look like. So basically the way I work and the way I see other people work is first we play uh, with uh, model training in Jupyter Notebook, then we save it as a Python script, clean it, put it uh, in a nice form, and then have it as a script that we can run from the command line or from CI, CD, like from, yeah. um, we use GitLab for that, so just nice. press a button and then the model is trained. And, and who does who does that conversion of the notebook into uh, a script? The data scientist, of course. Yeah, so correct. Because, like if you imagine that uh, there is a team of data scientists, and I actually was uh, in uh, a similar situation a while ago in my first company. So it wasn't a Jupyter notebook; it was uh, a R Markdown document. But anyways, mm -hmm. like it's even more fun, right? When it, it's an R. Uh, so there is a team of data scientists working, creating like um, you know, artificial intelligence using artificial intelligence to create this magic. And then there is a team of uh, data scientists sitting on a different floor that actually you know do like all the engineering stuff. And then one data scientist comes with this R uh, Markdown document to a Java developer saying, hey, so I have this cool thing, um, like uh, our CTO is super excited about this, can you please productionize it? And then, uh, of course, like, they look at this, okay, what is that? Like, how do I read this article? <laughs> how do I convert it to Java? Because, of course, nobody's going to deploy, like, um, another document. And then, um, like, it took, I think, almost a year to actually, um, so it was a very valuable project at the end. So yeah. it survived through this year, right? Because, uh, <laughs> uh, usually what happens is like something stops uh, along the way and then the project is discontinued, but that was a really important project. Mm -hmm. And uh, after deploying, it actually showed a good impact. But I think it's more an exception than uh, a rule, right? That, uh, you know, this uh, kind of setup works. And uh, yeah, so I think uh, it makes sense to for data scientists to be closer to the product teams, uh, ideally embedded. And I think this is the kind of setup we tried in the same company to um, build uh, feature teams, like mm -hmm. when data scientists work alongside with uh, product managers, with software developers, like backend, frontend, uh, basically everyone on the list all work on the same problem. And uh, yeah, basically everyone is aligned because when uh, one team is sitting on one floor, another team is sitting on another floor, or communication becomes difficult, right? Uh, and then um, software engineers are just surprised. Okay, who are you and why are you showing me that? And why yeah. is it important? Why me, right? <laughs> like, why should I help you? <laughs> um, yeah, no, so, that's, yeah, that's really good. And I, and I like the way that um, that by 
the way that you've done it by making the data scientists um, able, responsible and able to be able to um, create the notebooks, but then create the production scripts and being able to deploy those. That That is a really good way of, of, um, um, of encouraging people to think about the end-to-end value chain and to be able to take their models all the way to production. I think that that's mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, obviously, the cross-functional teams as well. Awesome. Really, really good good addition. Um, and I wanted to ask you more about the what you mentioned before about starting with the why. And, and I wanted to ask you about how... When you when you work with the product teams uh, in the cross-functional teams and you and you start with the why and and what the customer and end consumer outcome is going to be, what does that um, allow you to do throughout the project? What are the the I guess improvements um, mm-hmm. that, that that brings that that approach brings, and how can it help the data scientists do do a, a better job, and how can they contribute more with mm-hmm. that emphasis in the process? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, I think. Uh like in a cross-functional team, there is a, usually a product manager who can help to answer that or mm-hmm. can help find somebody who can answer that. And that really helps because um, when there is a just separate team, then if there is no product manager, people lose touch with uh, the product, with the user. And then knowing w- what are the problems that users have, they are pretty helpful in thinking about a solution. So let's say when you know why you're solving a certain thing, what kind of problem the user has, then um, yeah, you can sort of visualize this problem and then understand the solution better. And um, one important thing is here, like oftentimes, like when you understand the real why behind it, you can yeah. suggest like, uh, you can say, okay, but we don't actually need machine learning here. Like, can we test it uh, somehow differently? Like as a data scientist, because product managers cannot always do that. And this is, our responsibility as data people, data scientists, to actually tell them that um, we don't need machine learning. We can just do a simple rule here and uh, launch it as soon as possible and see how users reacted. Because let's say we have some assumptions and then by asking why we can understand what these assumptions are. So we think, okay, by doing this thing, the user, let's say by building a recommender system, the user will like, it will be easier for the users to find the thing they are looking for, right? And we have this assumption. Right, but we don't know if it's actually the case or not. Right? Maybe, yeah, maybe there is something else that will help users better. And then if we can do something simple, they're just to test this assumption. Then if we see that this assumption is true and then it will be helpful for users to uh, discover the products they like, let's say things that match together, um, then we can invest time into building a proper machine learning solution. Let's say for the first case, we can just do simple counting or just select popular items or I don't know, something like a simple heuristic. And then once we see that this thing is valuable, then we actually spend more time um, doing machine learning things. And then I think it saves time, right? So if it turns out that uh, we don't need to invest time into that, then we uh, invest time in something else, right? I think that is like the, the the probably one of the most important things. Like if you start with a why, you understand uh, what you're solving and what kind of solution is the best. And often, maybe it's not machine learning at all. Correct, and that's that's an awesome approach to to not you know not go into machine learning straight away whenever something comes up, but have have that as a as a process that that helps you sort of think and evaluate what is the actual best um, solution that's actually required to get the mm-hmm. the end um, the the value that's being um, searched. 
Um, we're starting to get questions from, from the audience through the, the Q&A section. So thanks, thanks people that have been putting your questions through. We'll keep continue to take questions through the, the rest of the conversation. And for the questions that are up on the Q&A section, uh, you can also upvote them. So you can give them a thumbs up if you want to hear that answer first. Um, and the, the first one that came, that came through from Sukhan said um, about, wanted, they wanted to ask about starting a, a data team in a startup. Uh, what, what are the first roles uh, that people should focus on, on filling out? Because um, obviously there's, there's a lot, I guess there's, there's often, a, often a lot of pressure and expectation that the data scientists should be the first people in the data in the data team, but sometimes the startup realities are a bit different. Mm -hmm. um, what are your views, Alexi, on what are the first roles to, to fill in a data team and considering limited budget as well and the other constraints of yes. the startup? So um, I would start with hiring engineers, right? So even it doesn't have to be data engineers, it can be just engineers. Yeah. Uh, because at the end, uh, like the lines are blurry, okay, like a usual backend engineer also knows how to query a database, right? And um, also understand what kind of problem we're trying to solve. Again, start with the why. So why do we need a data team? What kind of problem we want to solve? Mm -hmm. So what will be, how will it look like? Um, like, okay, let's imagine we have a team. What is the output of the team? Like what kind of, um, um, what kind of project they will work on? What kind of impact we want to see, right? And with, with that, we can realize that maybe we don't uh, uh, always need machine learning. Maybe we can just do something simpler to to show that, um, okay, like uh, like indeed this is a good project, and then we invest once this project is valuable. Also, what you can do is upskill your uh, backend engineers. Let's say you already have uh, back engineers working at the startup and then hiring the data scientist uh, will cost some money, but maybe it's better to invest this money into upskilling the existing people, right? Mm. So maybe um, like I know that for many software engineers, some machine learning is an interesting topic. So maybe it's a good idea to actually invest this money into these backend engineers who want to, to build a career in that, but they didn't have the right uh, um, you know, environment to learn, or uh, yeah, maybe they're just generally curious, but they don't have enough time to um, to learn these things. Um, by just uh, uh, upskilling them, I think um, you can already start building something without hiring a data scientist. Of course, there are times when you need to uh, like some questions, like let's say there is nobody knowledgeable in the team about this, and you're trying to convert the backend engineer into data scientist. Of course, they don't know the answers because they're newbies. I think for some cases like that, it makes sense to hire a consultant who, like maybe you hire them for a couple of hours, or I don't know, uh, like five hours or something like per week, uh, temporarily, uh, who can can listen to, like be some sort of uh, mentor. Let's say like when you have a problem, you just turn to this person and they can tell you like, okay, you're doing this wrong or you're doing that wrong instead of hiring a person full time. Mm. And then, uh, um, yeah, for upskilling software engineers, I know um, that software engineers are very, are very good material for uh, data scientists because if you think about most of the problems that we need to solve in data science, they are mostly engineering problems. Mm. We need to get the data, we need to prepare the data, we need to clean this data, right? Then we 
put this into scikit-learn, we <clears throat> invoke this fit, fit method, right? And then we save this model as a pickle or whatever format. And then we need to deploy this model, right? So there is not so much uh, machine learning going on, right? So mostly it's data preparation, like querying the data and then making sure that we can serve this model, right? And then there is a tiny little step in the, in the middle uh, so you don't need to have a super experienced data scientist for that. And some guidance will be helpful, but uh, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's great, and um, and it shows how how much the the market has changed, and I guess matured. That that um that we that that's that that's the I I agree with you. I feel that that's the right approach at the moment. Um, but obviously, you know, four or five years ago. Um, the older rage was on getting data scientists. Well, now we're saying, you know, the, the engineering around it is so much more important and the data science is becoming almost like more, more automated and more accessible. And now you can train people to, to do that. So I, I completely agree. Um, we have a few questions around the, the productionizing um, uh, process. Um, two, two related ones. So the, the first one is any tips on converting notebooks into Python scripts for deployment? Uh, and, and they want to know if you use any custom tools, scripts, uh, or, or is the process more copying and pasting and refining the, um, the code that was in the notebook, refining it into, into the script? What, um, what approach do you guys take? Yeah, so basically what you said. So there is no, uh, like no magic tool that can do this. At least I haven't found it. So maybe people at Netflix would roll this out to production no but i don't so what i typically do and what i see other people do is just save this as python file and clean it then um, put it um, like maybe have functions there like uh, uh, you know make this like a proper main method there so it's like it's uh, a set of functions and then yeah, basically you put this in a Docker container and depending on the way you want to serve it, let's say if you want to serve it as a inside uh, Spark, then you put this somehow in um, PySpark or whatever, depending on what you want to do. But typically, yes, so you save this first, then you have uh, like it's inside a function and then you can use this function in any environment, be it a Flask application, be it a Spark application, be it uh, whatever application. Yeah, that's great. Oh, good. I was um, I was also wondering because that's the approach that we take. Um, mm -hmm. So I was wondering if there was, if there was something better as well. <laughs> um, a related Sorry. question. Sorry. Sorry. No. Yeah. There's no. I know. Right. <laughs> no. But that's good. At least. At least uh, we have some consistency. Um, there's a related question from Balkan. Hey. Hey, Balkan. Um, he's asking, what are some of your favorite machine learning? Productionization tools, um, and what what are um, tools that you would that you would rather use, and others that you would rather not use uh, when when taking models into production? And he has, for example, Kubeflow, Airflow, DBT, etc. Um, do you have any any preferences and others to stay away from? Well, it depends again on the type of problem we want to solve. Like, let's say if we want to predict, uh, do predict every hour or every day, so once per day. Then um, I typically, I used to use Luigi. It's similar to Airflow. It's like also mm -hmm. orchestration thing. Um, now I tend to use Airflow for that. And then inside Airflow, you can mix, uh, you can put different things there. So it can be like SQL operator that goes to a database, uh, extract something from, from there. There could be Spark operators. And um, 
Yeah, so this is basically what I use, like a bunch of SQL plus Spark operators. And then um, I think uh, one of the easiest way to predictionize a model in such a, in such a mode, in this so-called batch mode, like when you predict something uh, once per day, for example, is PySpark. So you just put a model there, you apply it there, and then Spark takes care of loading the data and then saving the data to your storage can be S3 or HDFS, whatever Spark just knows how to read the data and how to save the data. When it comes to uh, real-time serving, so this is another case when the model needs to be up and running all the time. Let's say it can be um, two weeks when people are posting advertisements. So that when, um, so let's say you want to sell an iPhone, you go to OLX. Uh, if you're in Poland or India or the, uh, any other country where Olix is present. So you want to post an iPhone, you go there, you create a listing, you create an advertisement and put iPhone there. And let's say a model needs to understand uh, what kind of category is that, right? It needs to understand that it should go to electronics mobile phones category, right? And that kind of model needs to be up and running all the time. And this is this requires a different kind of deployment, right? And this is uh, typically, again, if we talk about deep learning, then we use TensorFlow serving, for example, and uh, some Flask code uh, also. Um, and then we deploy everything in Kubernetes. So it's kind of similar to Kubeflow. So Kubeflow is probably more specialized because it allows you to deploy models there. We also have Kubeflow, but we're evaluating it. Most of our um, existing things are running in the uh, TensorFlow serving in Kubernetes. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to simpler models, not deep learning models, typically we use um, Flask. There are other frameworks uh, like uh, Async.io, I think, or uh, you know, something like that, that I think are faster. But uh, on top of my mind, I think uh, maybe in majority of applications, like 80% of them is Flask and Docker, oh. of course. And then we put everything to Kubernetes. Yeah, nice. That's really good. Um, and uh, one one of the ones in the list was DBT. Have you have you come across DBT before? I no, have no idea what is that. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're we're using it to uh, to do our data processing pipeline on SQL. So essentially, uh -huh. it's, it's um, kind of like an orchestrator for for SQL. Uh -huh. um, ah, so like Airflow, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So similar similar to to Airflow. Um, um, but only only SQL based is is um, at least my understanding the way that we're using it, and it's been it's been pretty good so far. Cool, that's yeah, good. Take a look. So, man, I wanted to ask you about about your your books. Um, obviously, I wanted to to ask more about about your um your latest book that you're that you're working on. But you you've written uh, Mastering Java for Data Scientists, <laughs> TensorFlow Deep Learning Projects, um, and now the Machine Learning Book Club. Uh, book camp, sorry. Um, where, where did the inspiration for, for writing books come from and how have you found the process of, of putting your, your knowledge into, into a book? Yeah, so I liked sharing my knowledge since, uh, I don't know when I started, like maybe at university. So I often liked taking part in different uh, um, like scientific fairs, I don't know how it's called, like basically when people exchange knowledge, okay, I built that thing, I built that thing, and people are just showing and, uh, yeah, um, and then publishing something in a local uh, journal. So it was fun, and then uh, when I started working, uh, uh, I started blogging, 
So it was um, um, back in, when I lived in Russia, so it was in Russian. And then I found out that like when I just am learning something, uh, I was learning Python, for example, like when I started uh, like in 2010, uh, Python and Django. And then I wrote an article about Python, I wrote an article about Django, put it on my blog, and then suddenly pe people started to read it, like just out of nowhere, probably from Google or, and then, uh, I also learned Groovy at some point. That's another language from the Java ecosystem. So I uh, wrote something like a 10 minute introduction to Groovy and then it also received a lot of attention. Again, out of nowhere, I didn't really advertise it. I didn't know about social media back then. Um, it was a pleasant experience to uh, share knowledge and see people read it. And uh, I don't know if they liked it or not, uh, but yeah, I, I hope they did. Uh, but that was uh, a nice experience, and um, I think this is this is how I got into the whole book writing business. Uh, but uh, I think it, it first started with um, the pact, uh, the, the publisher pact. They reached out to me uh, asking if I can uh, review books for them. I said yes, of course, and they oh, nice. promised uh, they promised to put my name on the book. I thought, yeah, great uh, visibility. Um, uh, remember after the first book was published I googled my name and then this book came up that was uh, super nice <laughs> like uh, yeah and I did uh, like I reviewed like five books for them and then at some point they said hey you're such a good reviewer like how about writing a book for us and then I hmm, actually yeah why not and then they proposed actually they said okay we are working on this title about Java and machine learning and I thought okay I am a Java developer I know machine learning, so there are not so many books about that, so why not? And then this is how it happened. But uh, with Java, um, you probably know it's not uh, like the most popular language for machine learning, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, it was, I was hoping to, to get into a niche topic, like, you know, it was too niche. So it's mm -hmm. basically not selling at all. So, um, not so many people need uh, Java, so they'd rather, I don't know, quit their job than uh, uh, code in Java. Um, anyways, yeah, so this is how I um, started um, the second book. I was actually a co-author there, so uh, a friend of mine was working on a book and then they said, okay, we have a problem with one of the authors, uh, he's too busy, can you help us with taking over his chapters? I thought, okay, why not? So I took uh, over these chapters. And then um, after a year, I think, uh, just because of that book, TensorFlow Projects, I got contacted by Manning saying, hey, like we like this idea of learning by doing projects. Can you write a book for us? Um, and that uh, this is how uh, Machine Learning Book Camp started. And yeah, so I thought, yeah, I really like this idea and I really like the idea of learning by doing projects and I this is something I also used for my first book in Java but that was in Java and I thought I thought okay nobody uses Java so let me do this in Python and let me do it uh, uh, let me do it better and this is how this book appeared and I uh, tried to like when coming back at my career what was helpful for me for transitioning from software engineering to data science it was mostly learning by doing projects and this is why i thought this is such a good idea because it really like this is how i learn things 
And I found out that many other software engineers learn in a similar way. So they learn by doing things, by implementing things. And this is the approach I'm using uh, in the book. And so far, I've finished um, like 80% of the book already. So it's uh, possible to, to read it uh, already. So I just need to finish um, two chapters. Uh, and then, of course, there is a lot of editing going on. And um, yeah, the, the whole experience is pretty rewarding. Um, but it takes a lot of effort to actually do this because uh, like for every chapter, like the, like the process is, um, like I first write an out, I first create some code and write an outline and start describing things. And then I realized, okay, if I describe everything I wanted initially, it will be 100 pages long, like a chapter. This is too long, <laughs> I will read it. Um, so what do I need to take away while still, uh, you know, like it should be focused not too much information, just enough information, the most important information. And then, okay, what should I, like when I wrote this, like what should I uh, take out? And that is quite difficult and then it takes a lot of time. But I think at the end, what, uh, what I have, at, or what we have at the end is uh, like a book that focuses really on the essential things, like something that you, like something that a software engineer really needs to know to get into the, so something really focused. Takes a lot of time, but um, the feedback I received about this book, um, it keeps me really motivated because like every time I read, hey, your book is so nice, like the examples really work for me. And then I think, okay, I really need to finish this because I, like this is such a, like it really makes me feel good uh, hearing these kind of things. So the process yeah. is difficult, but rewarding. Yeah, and that's something that um, that I think Manning does quite well in terms of involving um, future readers, involving them early in the process, uh, so they can they can uh, preview uh, the chapters as they're coming out and, and, and provide that feedback to to guide the author. So that that's really good. And tell me, what what was the or what is the aim of of the book? So um, it's it sounds like it's targeted to software engineers. And and what what will they be able to do uh, once they finish the book? Yeah, so basically that was the original intention. The target audience uh, are software engineers who want to get into machine learning. And after finishing the book, they will be able to do the most essential things that should be enough to get hired as a machine learning engineer or data scientist. So basically, knowing the most important models, knowing how to set up cross-validation, knowing how to deploy a model, and um, things like that. So this is, and the way I do this, I start with a project, like, okay, this is what we're solving, and then guiding through this project and these other steps we're doing. Surprisingly, so I said it was supposed to, like the target audience was software engineers, and it still is, but what I found out that this approach and this book also works for other kind of uh, people like for uh, product analysts, for example, or um, f f like many different people who do not fit this um, criteria that I had in mind. Yeah. They reached out to me saying that this approach really works for them. Because so even like or, less, less technical people as well. Yes, yes, exactly. Like, um, for example, people like uh, who are doing petroleum engineering or like real engineers, not software engineers. <laughs> yeah, so they... Uh, they are saying that this is helpful for them as well, and that uh, this is really great. So I'm, um, so I know that uh, 
some chapters are difficult for them, especially deploying ones, like mm-hmm. when you have a model and then you need to put it in Flask and then put it to Docker and deploy it to AWS. It's one of the chapters. It's challenging for them. Um, uh, but yeah, so what uh, I heard is um, that it's challenging in a good way, that they are able to learn a lot. And it's great that you're including deployment in there as well. Um, and how how did you choose the projects that were going to and the, the exercises that were going to go into into the book, and uh, and what and what are some of them? Well, yeah, it was just uh, from my experience. I wanted to to make them real, like something that uh, you would uh, meet in real life. You will see in real life. I wanted to also, you know, make them relatable so people mm-hmm. understand. So, for example, one of the projects is predicting the price of a car. Everyone will understand. Everyone who knows what a car is uh, will understand that you know you need to pay some money for this car, and you need to, like, let's say, if you want to sell it, you want to know for how much. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that is one of the projects there. And then, um, what is important, I think, um, uh, I include exercises at the end. And if you want to get most out of the book. After reading the chapters, you should get you should do these exercises um, because uh, it really makes you to to uh, sort of uh, digest everything that was uh, that what, that happened in the chapter. So in the chapter, I guide through a project, but then there are other projects that are similar that you are supposed to do that you have to do that you should do like independently. And I think like if you want to get uh, most value from the book, you should do that as well. And then um, uh, at the end, you have a good portfolio of projects, some of them from the book, some of them that you did on your own, and that should be enough to um, showcase that, uh, like uh, your skills and have a positive impression on hiring managers. Nice one. That's, that's really good. And um, how, how long is the, the book coming up to be? Um, so I, I really like, I got to say, I really like the approach of, of thinking about what to take away from a chapter um, in order to leave the, the most, inter- most important parts. Um, so what's, what's it looking like at the end? Well, my editor says too long. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to that. Yes. Well, I guess uh, about 500 pages, which is, uh, nice. yeah, it should have been less. But sometimes it's really oh, I, difficult. I don't know, man. I don't know. Like in, in my team, um, so I work in a healthcare AI uh, company and uh, as I'm, I'm head of data science. And we have a, a machine learning book club where uh, all of the, the data teams, uh, we go through a machine learning textbook. We go through one chapter of Fortnite. And uh, the one that we're reading at the moment is like 750 pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's 19, 19 chapters. And so it's, it's essentially taken us, you know, three quarters of the year. Um, we're up to chapter 16 now. I'm gonna, we're going to finish it before the end of the year. Um, and, and, and super, super valuable. So I, I, I can see by, by obviously having, having a, a look at your book, I can see that the, the content in there is also like highly valuable, really important. And as we can see from the questions that are, that are, that are still coming in, uh, it's, it's uh, areas that people are really interested in. Um, so, yeah. So, anyway, obviously, obviously um, the publisher will have a, a more, more informed uh, um, point of view, I guess. But, um, yeah, interesting to hear how, how the, the editing is going. If it's, if it's a 500 page, it sounds like a good, um, like a good uh, comprehensive book. Yes, I hope so. 
So if you feel tired after reading this book, please uh, tell me. I hope it's not the case and uh, yeah and you and, and and what are what are you what are you looking to um to either take out or or what what are looking like the the final changes before it's completed yeah you mean like when i have uh, things and then i need to take out some of them i just start writing something and then imagine let's say if we talk about neural networks then if we talk about activation functions and then i imagine that in order to really explain this I'll need to spend like, I don't know, write five or 10 chapters to really explain it. And then I think, okay, yeah, like now it's already long, but if I add five more pages to that, then it will be even longer. And then I just um, leave um, sort of like uh, just general overview, okay, this is what you need to use because of this reason. And then uh, leave it out basically, not include. And then like, Neural networks, this is what I just finished, and there, like, there is a lot of things where you can, like, it's very hard to stop once you go down this um, this path. And, uh, yes. like, I really have to stop myself from, okay, I know, like, if I continue going down that road, it will be 200 pages, and <laughs> I don't have enough time, I don't have enough paper to actually to do that, and I better stop. Oh, that's excellent! Well, it it shows it it shows how passionate you are about it and how much how much you love it. Um, I think it also shows how much you know about it, actually. Um, so that's and, and how good of a job you want to do for the reader um, to be able to give them that that uh, comprehensive understanding. Oh, that is that is excellent. And when when um, I know that once once the book is finished right being written, then it obviously goes into editing and and uh, final checks and reviews and et cetera before, before publishing. Uh, but roughly what, what is the, the date or um, month that you're targeting for publishing? Okay, so I want to finish writing the, the like let's say the main part. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to finish it this year. And Great. then um, hopefully I also finish with all the editing and uh, so the, the review process is pretty rigorous. So they send it uh, out to people who are also in the target audience, also to experts who already know machine learning. And then everyone has uh, comments, suggestions, or there are errors that need to be addressed. And then it takes a lot of time to actually address these errors, hmm. uh, address these comments. So I hope to finish uh, like the main text in a couple of months. So I just need to write a couple of chapters and that should be it. But then also um, first addressing the suggestions and many of the suggestions really make sense and make it a lot better than what it was before. Addressing these things will probably take uh, one or maybe two months more depending on uh, the amount. And then going to what they call production. So publishers also have their own production. Uh, so they're... Uh, like making sure all the images are good, have high, uh, good enough resolution, like uh, making sure formatting is good because right now um, it still feels like a draft, even though I try to make sure that everything is fine. Oftentimes, like uh, I write in Google Docs and when it's converted to, uh, like there is a few steps that need to happen before it becomes like a PDF. And then in these steps, some things happen, and then uh, the result doesn't always look the way I intend. 
And then I think there will be a long process to make sure that everything looks exactly in the way I want. Um, so that can take also uh, a month. So hopefully, um, like uh, the main text will be ready this year, and then probably January, February, uh, like the, the book I'll actually I will be holding a printed book in my hands. Amazing! Oh man, that sounds great. Um, so we uh, for the last little bit, we're going to go back to the to the audience questions. Uh, so for 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 everyone. Um, that's, that's joined today, have a look at the Q&A section and upvote the questions that you want to uh, hear Alexi answer and we'll go through and we'll um, start at the questions that have the, the most number of votes and we'll, we'll work down to see how many we can, we can get through. Um, but as, as while, while people are, are voting for the questions and adding any, any new questions that they might want to hear about, I wanted to ask you, last question about the book. What's your favorite project um, or exercise that you've included in the book? Okay, the one I just finished, I think, is going to be my favorite one. So this, uh, it's not released yet, so it will be an update pretty soon. Um, it's about uh, deep learning, and there the problem is to predict the type of clothes. So basically, like, you type take a picture and type of clothes like mm -hmm. it's a t-shirt yep. yep. or uh, a shirt or dress or skirt or whatever there are 10 categories of clothes and i really like it because i decided to collect the data set myself for that so right. i took pictures of all my clothes then i asked the community like my linkedin connections um and twitter uh, followers to also do that um I use crowdsourcing platforms to collect this data set. And then um, one company reached out to me, Tagias, who also suggested to contribute to this data set. And then uh, right. they contributed like 3,000 uh, different images, of course. And uh, going through this process, like I know, like uh, it's not easy. Like building a data set, curating this data set is not uh, an easy job, right? Uh, that's another thing that takes uh, a lot of time like, because, uh, uh, you know, on Kaggle, you just have a CC magically from somewhere and you just train a model, but you know, yeah. usually it's not the case, right? You need to collect it. And having this experience through crowdsourcing by asking connections and then actually taking my phone and taking all these three, 400 pictures, my five has a lot of calls, uh, like myself, and uh, that, <laughs> that I really like this process. So um, that's why, because uh, I went an extra mile for this project, I think. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be my favorite one. That's great. Oh, that's awesome, man! Really good. Um, so let's jump into the audience questions, and we'll see um, how many we can we can get through in the in the next you know five to seven minutes. So the um, the first one is which which is the cloud platform for a beginner data scientist to learn? Um, do you have any recommendations? Yeah. So my personal suggestion would be AWS. I am not affiliated with AWS in any way. But I think uh, they um, they are the most popular platform now. So, and um, let's say if I talk about if I'm, if we're talking about Berlin market, uh, I'm uh, I know like what what are the trends in Germany, uh, for example, and let's say in Berlin, this is the most popular cloud platform. I know also in the states it's the case, uh, and uh, like the second and third most popular platforms are pretty far away. Like if we talk about um, market share, 
So my recommendation would be to like if you are not working and we want to to learn something, CWS. But if you are working, learn whatever you use in a company because the, I think this knowledge is more or less transferable. Like mm -hmm. the, let's say some services you have in AWS, I'm sure you'll find uh, them in Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure or whatever. And uh, actually now I think it becomes even more standardized with Kubernetes. Yeah. Because every like all the big uh, players have Kubernetes there, and if you know how to use Kubernetes, then you're basically good because you can use this knowledge with every cloud. Yeah, I agree. That's great. Um, next one is for um, for graduates that don't have a computer science or an IT background. Do you have any suggestions on how to get a first job as a data analyst? Um, should they be including Kaggle projects? Uh, what what are some some tips uh, that you have that can help them land their first their first job in the space? So, when people ask me about this, like uh, I'm a data analyst, I'm a data scientist, I'm a software engineer, I'm X. I, I mean, I want to be X. How do I do this? Yeah. My answer is usually the same: do it by building projects and then telling the world about these projects. So build a project like, let's say, for a data analyst, uh, um, yeah, just analyze, like, you, let's say you, um, yeah, I don't know um, uh, what could be interesting, well, let's say uh, medium post or whatever, like, or maybe scrape something, yeah. like, I don't know, maybe a, a website like Olix, scrape the fashion category or scrape the mobile phones category and then try to analyze that. And then don't stop off that, like, okay, you do the analysis, you scrape the data, you prepare the data, you do some scripts, but uh, don't stop off that, like publish this, go to GitHub, put it there, go to Medium, write an article about this, and then go to LinkedIn and share this article, share this GitHub repository, and then mention that you're looking for a job. And uh, yeah, and uh, like, if you're not afraid of uh, public speaking, then talk on a meetup about yes. this and then mention then you um, you're looking for a job and if you're afraid of public speaking then also do that because um, in the long run it will help you I know it's very difficult uh, uh, for people like uh, I heard that it's one of the most common fears speaking in public um, but if you rehearse enough then uh, like let's say if you first rehearse in front of your mobile phone or webcam then uh, in front of uh, couple of people that you know then maybe in front of uh, a team or your classmates or whoever then talking about this in front of 20 people is not scary after doing this like after talking about these things for 10 times and then after talking to 20 people then maybe an audience of 50 people is not scary anymore and then so the key here is rehearsing so do that as well and, and then people will start reaching out to you instead of you trying to reach out to them. So build portfolio, build online presence, no matter what kind of job you're targeting, that should work for everyone. Definitely, yeah, oh man, excellent answer. I could not agree more, that's but brilliant. But it's a difficult answer also, so sorry it's, there's it's, no um, magic pill. Correct, it shows, it shows um, the, the amount of effort that you need to put into the process, but if you do that, you are like guaranteed to succeed. And um, you know, there's so, much, there's so much data being released out there that is, that is unused. Like, 
um, I, I work in healthcare and the, the government releases so much healthcare data of what's happening in the country. And uh, we, we're trying to have a look at it and consume it. But if we had applicants for jobs who had a project doing what you said, um, where they had taken government healthcare data and then did an analysis and, and showed us, that would really de-risk our decision and we'd be able to move forward really quickly. So I thought your, your answer was fantastic. Um, the, the next one is, uh, which I'm curious also about, uh, they're asking about what platforms, uh, do, um, what platforms do you use in your CICD pipeline? So for CI/CD, we use um, well. Different teams use different tools. So we use Jenkins, but uh, not everyone like it. So in some yep. places we use Jenkins, but mostly, I think uh, the company-wide standard is GitLab CI/CD. So in Git, uh, GitLab, you have uh, CI/CD. It's quite easy to configure, and then we also have people who can help us configure if something is not easy. And then I personally find it. Um, yeah, quite uh, straightforward to use, especially when it's configured. When you have done this for a couple of times, then basically for me, it's just copying from one place to another. It's all code, like because it's just a YAML file that you can just copy and paste. And then once you do this, you have a button in the CI/CD pipeline that you just click, and then it's awesome. Or like it's not always a button. Sometimes, of course, like the main reason why you want to do this is for continuous uh, like running tests continuously and then uh, mm -hmm. deploying continuously but usually before deploying to production like uh, what we, we do is we deploy to staging environment continuously like on each push but then before deploying to production like actually a human should make this decision and press the button and then it goes live awesome awesome oh man that is that is fantastic um I do have one one last question. I know that we're that we're up on time, and um, uh, but before before we go, I did want to ask you with with everything that you've done in your career, what what are you most proud of? I remember helping my friend to get a job in data science. Yeah, and uh, just uh, telling uh, what uh, he can do next, um, and then uh, he was working as a software engineer. And then mm -hmm. he managed to do this. And then I also managed to help a couple of other person, uh, people to do the same thing, to help uh, to do this transition. And um, yeah, I think that was uh, really great. And then also now people reach out to me on LinkedIn asking questions. And uh, I try to answer everything. So I try to help everyone. And... Uh, yeah, it's uh, sometimes difficult. Sometimes, like after talks like that, I turn, I get uh, quite a few questions, like on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, and what I'm trying to do is now somehow scale this uh, scale this effort and try to have a community where people can uh, ask me questions. But when I answer, everybody everybody sees that, or other people also jump in and maybe somebody who I helped previously can also help somebody else. Then I'm trying to build this community and uh, I'm very excited to see uh, where uh, it is going. Um, right now there are not so many people because I started like one month ago, but uh, I hope uh, something will happen there and I will be able to help more people this way instead of just answering everyone. I'm still happy to do that, answer everyone, everyone who writes me on LinkedIn, but I'm trying to make it more um, scalable. So not just the one who writes me benefits from the answer, but everyone else. And yeah, right. let's see 
Yeah. So this is, I'm already proud uh, about this, but I know that in a couple of months I will be even more proud. And what's, what's the link? Uh, it's datatalks.club. Nice. Man, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. I can't thank you enough uh, for sharing your journey, your perspectives. Uh, you really um, captured uh, people's imaginations and you could see that in the questions and the engagement. And um, yeah, really looking forward to, to reading uh, your book, your new book. Uh, so thank you so much for, for sharing everything with us that you've done today. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Too kind. And guys, thanks everyone for joining the session. Have a great day or afternoon, evening, anywhere where you are. Alexi, have a great night and we'll be in touch soon. Goodbye. Thanks guys. Bye everyone. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.